0: C.S. Lewis is a, or was a British theologian, novelist, academician. You may recognize his name from Tales of Narnia, or Chronicles of Narnia, rather. At one point, he wrote these words. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would be a great moral t- would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Watch the screens. You got a bulletin as you were coming in, or received a bulletin. You'll see some things to guide our thinking this morning that could help you. But in Matthew 16, here's the picture: Jesus and his disciples are walking through Caesarea Philippi, stopping along the way to heal the, blind, heal the lame, the blind, the deaf, and feed several thousand. Several thousand with seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. It was just another day with the Messiah. He turns to his disciples who we know were his best friends, and he asks, "Who do people say I am?" So you can see them looking at each other and they're waiting, and finally they start to speak, and they say things like this. Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah. but still others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, "But who do you say?" That I am. Now, when was the last time one of your friends said, uh, What do you think about me really? Or that you said that to your friend? What do you think about me really? So Peter, one of his friends, steps up to the question and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There it is the answer that challenges the entire culture of the day. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we're going to look at three questions this morning. The first one is, what is the question that really matters the most? The question of the ages. And the only question that really matters, above all, who do I say Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? It's the central question for anyone who wants to become a disciple or who plans to be a disciple Who is, or who is a disciple? And so all the other questions fall under that umbrella. It's our guide. It's what gives us purpose. It marks our eternal significance. It answers our need for intimacy because if we think we know everything about Jesus, the result is boredom. If we begin to think, been there, done that, then our life takes on just about finding out how to make life work better for us. It diminishes life for you and me. Our greatest focus becomes lesser, and we find ourselves looking for a replacement that will always be less and less and ultimately unsatisfying. Our focus must be on Jesus Christ. Now, if you look around, it's become evident that our world is kind of forgotten the powerful impact that Jesus has had on this planet. Eighty years ago, a fellow by the name of James A. Francis wrote a poem entitled One Solitary Life. And the last part of this says, All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of mankind on this earth as that one solitary life. I should hear an amen. It's okay to say amen, by the way. Y'all are awfully quiet this morning. Though skeptics and unbelievers try to convince us otherwise, the fact is that 2,000 years after his time, we still live in a Jesus-shaped world, regardless of what the critics say. Jesus is history's most familiar individual His impact is massive, and it's on purpose. Let's look at a few ways that Jesus has changed this planet forever. And we don't have time. It's an encyclopedia, literally an encyclopedia of all the things that have been affected. But let's take a few. Let's talk about women for just a moment. Before Jesus, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, there was a shortage of women. There were about 140 men to every 100 women. So what happened to the other women? Well, they were left to die because they were born the wrong sex. You see, in Roman law, a father was required to raise all healthy male children, but only the firstborn female. Any others were considered disposable. Jesus gave women a different place in the world. It's hard for us to wrap our our minds around how different the world was when Jesus entered it. In the gospels it was it was a group of women that followed Jesus to the cross and stayed there and frankly men you all we all ran. All of us macho believers we got nervous but the ladies stayed. Women took on prominent roles of leadership in the early church and still today. And that's good. How about education? How about education? He was an unrecognized scholar and yet the the record of his life and teachings have impacted the world to the point that they have been tra- it has been translated. His teachings have been translated into 2,527 different languages. Before Jesus' education was reserved for male children of wealthy families. After Jesus and his commands to teach all peoples, they began to teach men and women, both slaves and free. Martin Luther emphasized the priesthood of all believers, which led to a goal of universal literacy for everyone. In our country, the the great universities that were first established on this continent, Harvard, Yale, William and Mary, Princeton, and Brown, all had the same founding purpose. Have you ever read that purpose? Their purpose was that the main end of one's life and studies is to know God And Jesus Christ. In 1780, a Jesus follower in Great Britain by the name of Robert Rakes couldn't stand the poverty and ignorance that he saw around him related to children. Because this was the day before child labor laws. In those days, children worked six days a week, six days a week. And the only free day was Sunday. So he looked around and he said, I'm going to establish a school that's not going to cost anything. In fact, the quote was, I'm going to start a school for free to teach them to read and write and learn about God. He called it Sunday school. Within 50 years, there was 1.5 million children being educated at Sunday school by 160,000 volunteer teachers. In nation after nation, Christian missionaries who found languages that had not been written down yet, they devoted their lives to making this happen. They compiled the first dictionaries, the first grammars, the first alphabets, and in many languages, Jesus was the first proper name that they learned to write. The majority of scientific pioneers, William of Ockham, Francis Bacon, Galileo, Blaise Pascal, Joseph Priestley, Louis Pasteur, Isaac Newton, by the way, he wrote commentaries on Revelation, They viewed their work as, listen, learning to think God thoughts. How about status? Before Jesus began to affect the planet, only a few people counted. Whether it was the clothes you wore, the houses you lived in, where you sat at the table, who you could talk to or do business with, whether you could have access to education or medical help, where you could sit or stand at a public event, or if you even had rights as a citizen. Everything was about your recognized status, and only a narrow group had access to that. None of frankly, I'm sorry, I don't want to make any of you nervous, but none of us here today would have found acceptance in that world. We wouldn't have made it. That was the world before Jesus. How about humanity and violence versus nonviolence? Before Jesus, an eye for an eye. Before Jesus, love your friends, hate your enemies. Before Jesus, it was always us versus them. Followers of Jesus began to resist serving in the Roman military, partly because they had to to follow emperor worship, but part of it was also to avoid bloodshed. The teachings of Jesus inspired the Russian writer Leo Tolstoy to write a book entitled Resurrection. And that inspired a British-trained lawyer named Mahatma Gandhi, who, though he didn't become a Christian, he became inspired by the Sermon on the Mount, and that led to a nonviolent movement that later inspired a fellow by the the name of Martin Luther King. In his well-known I Have a Dream speech, one of the great speeches of of the past century and maybe of all time, Dr. King quotes the prophet Amos. So it all just keeps connecting back to our faith. Author John Ortberg writes, It was the language of the prophets from a preacher of the gospel of Jesus that inspired the conscience of a nation. Jesus said, Love your neighbor, love your enemy. How about marriage? Early Rome required Romans to... To be married and raise children. It was a requirement for Romans to, have, to be married and raise children. It was a civic duty, though. It was like paying taxes. Caesar Augustus outlawed marriage between members of different classes, and slaves were technically not even allowed to marry. And, re, and remember this, that up to possibly half of the Roman Empire were slaves. So you see how skewed skewed that was. It was an elitist institution that the Romans oversaw. And the Romans oversaw a lot in those days. But here comes Jesus, and he taught things like this. He taught that marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. He taught that sex has a spiritual component. He taught that faithfulness to each other is a quality to be prized in men as well as women. And that children are to be protected rather than sexually exploited. And all of this would change the world. Inspiration, another area. What inspires you this morning? What inspires you? Inspiration comes from beyond ourselves. And Jesus inspired people. Jesus is still inspiring it's been written that the that the that Mars, the Greek god of war, might have inspired a man to kill in the arena, but Jesus inspired men and women to give their life and to die in the arena. The developmental history of Europe, of European languages and literacy, rests on more than any other single figure in history. So, in music, in architecture, in art. After Jesus, all the important music written and even the development of music notation itself was because of the influence and the inspiration of Jesus Christ. The influence of Christianity has been the single greatest factor in the development of architecture for the last 2,000 years. And in art, we don't even know what Jesus looked like, and yet he's the most recognizable figure in the world. So back to Matthew. Jesus asks his disciples what the crowds are saying about him. And their answers weren't even close. He said, well, or they were off the target for sure. He said, well, uh, John the Baptist or Elijah. Somebody said, Jeremiah. One of the guys in the back said, how about one of the prophets? That's what we're hearing. And we, and we look at it on this side of history and we think, how did they miss it? They're walking with him. And yet... What kind of answers do we give about who Jesus is? Because many today are comfortable describing Jesus as a good person, a great teacher, or even a prophet. Kind of a Mr. Rogers personality, right? Now, I like Mr. Rogers. I don't have anything against Mr. Rogers, but Mr. Rogers is not who Jesus is. You see, a nice Jesus... A nice Jesus fits into a belief that life is really about trying harder to be a good person. But even that picture puts the standard of niceness way above our ability to reach it, doesn't it? So at every turn, Jesus is far beyond our expectations. He's far beyond our standards. Jesus is far beyond our abilities to reach without an intimacy with him. That's the only way we get close. He's beyond without a relationship with Him or without letting Him be the complete authority in our lives because the mission of Jesus was and still is today is to show us the heart of God and then to rebuild the trust that we need to be intimate with Him. We lost the trust in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve... Our great, 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 you know, those guys way back there. They kind of messed it up. And they skewed the perfect plan that God had for our lives and for our planet. And the relationship we were supposed to have with Him. Have you thought, has it ever occurred to you, that had they not made the poor decision to give in to sin, that we might still live in the Garden of Eden? Or that Adam and Eve would have never died, and we might have gotten to be there with them. I don't know. You can take that thinking a long way, can't you? But we lost our intimacy with God, and Jesus was all about putting us in connection with him again to the heart of God. Romans chapter 5, the first five verses, says this, and it's on the screen. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of unreserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance." And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Still today, Jesus is showing us the heart of God. And that's where our hope lies this morning. And the Holy Spirit continues to give us an opportunity to experience his love. So we get to get up close and personal rather than at a distance. So we must continue to strive to answer the question, who do I say Jesus is? Because it will lead us to the life our soul has always longed for. So who do you say Jesus is? Now our second what we're calling most important question that really matters, is who does Jesus say that I am? So we establish who he is, and then we say, hmm, so who does that make me? Who am I? Well, Peter steps up, and he says, to answer the question, who do I say that I am? Who do I say, Who? excuse me, who do you say that I am? Peter shows us that he has a relationship that's growing, because for Peter to say, you are the son of God, was huge for that day. He called him the Messiah, the Son of God. So that shows that Peter's faith was growing. And here's how the Lord responded in Matthew 18. He says now, or 16, verse 18, Now I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We think we have people fool sometimes I think. We spend a lot of effort trying to put on a positive thing about ourselves to the world around us. We kind of have this mirror and we think this mirror is reflecting how honest and how we are and this is the true picture of us. Jesus looked at Peter and he said, "Peter, you are the rock." That's who Jesus saw. When we recognize Jesus, he'll show us our true name and our true self. He becomes our mirror. When we let Jesus come out of the background and allow him to be up front in our everyday lives, we begin to see ourselves in his mirror, a clear mirror. Ephesians 1.11 says, Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. The message, a paraphrased version of God's word, says it this way. It's in Christ that we find who we are and what we are living for. We find who we are and what we are living for. Jesus sees something in every one of us this morning. And we need to discover... Not only what that is, but how we can use that to impact the world. Because we tend to be kind of selfish, don't we? We want to to get better for our own sake rather than better because it's so we can serve. A guy named Ted Erickson, he's an author, a speaker. He wrote a piece called The Progression. And here's what he says. Get to know Jesus well. Because the more you know him, the more you love him. And the more you love him, the more you'll want to follow him. And the more you follow him, the more you'll want to become like him. And the more you become like him, the more you become yourself, your true nature, the one he has for you rather than the one we want to invent for ourselves. When Jesus looks at Simon, he calls him Peter or Petros, the rock. He wasn't pulling a name out of the air. He was calling Peter by his true identity, by his potential, by what he would become. This isn't a name that had been used before. Because it's kind of like naming your child rock or tree or door or window. Or dirt, right? But he called called Simon the rock, the Petros. Because he saw what Peter was going to become. His true identity. But in the naming, he was answering two questions. Who am I? And what am I doing here? Have you answered those questions? Who is he? What are you doing here? Whether you're a student beginning and heading into life, or whether you've been at this for a very long time, or you're getting, you see the other side coming a little closer, wherever you are on that scale of living, do you know what your purpose is this morning? Are you just bumping along, trying to get from day to day? The name Jesus has for us shows us the faith he has in us and his understanding of how our heart is wired. Jesus has faith in us. He has faith in you this morning. Regardless of what you've done and who you are and where you've come from, Jesus has faith in you. And I think we sometimes forget that because we think we've gotten far from him. But our identity is tied to a purpose and the purpose he has for you in this kingdom That we live and operate in. He has something he wants you to do. So as we move through our journey with him. He reveals more and more of that identity. You didn't get it all when you became a Christian. You didn't know everything at that point. Because you weren't ready for it. But through your time as a believer. He has tried to prepare you. And help you grow. But now our enemy Satan. He wants to keep us from discovering who we are. And why we're here. If Satan can keep us off track, he wins. And you lose. This is why it's critical for each of us to discover and then to accept and then to live out our true name in Jesus Christ. Because some of us this morning, frankly, you've seen what the future could look like with your faith in Jesus, but you've chosen perhaps not to do it. He said, "No, I'm really not ready. I'm really not ready, and we have an opportunity to finish our days at whatever point you're in, strong, following him. There's a picture we can see of this by J. R. R. Tolkien called "Lord of the Rings." Our central character is a man named Strider. And he's been ashamed of his background, and he's been ashamed of his life, and he takes on this name Strider, and he wanders the wilderness as a ranger. But his true name in this story is Aragorn, and he's the rightful king, but he's ashamed of his past until a friend challenges him to take on his true identity. Check out the screens.
1: I take my leave. My Lord Elrond, I come on behalf of one whom I love. Arwen is dying. You will not long survive the evil that now spreads from Mordor. The light of the Even Star is failing. As Sauron's power grows, her strength wanes. Arwen's life is now tied to the fate of the Ring. The shadow is upon us, Aragorn. The end has come. You will not be our end, but his. You ride to war, but not to victory. Sauron's armies march on Minas Tirith, as you know, but in secret he sends another force which will attack from the river. A fleet of Corsair ships sails from the south. They'll be in the city in two days. You're outnumbered, Aragorn. You need more men. There are none. You would call upon them to fight. They believe in nothing. They answer to no one. They will answer to the king of Gondor. Anduril, the flame of the west, forged from the shards of Narsin. More deadly than any that walks this earth. Put aside the ranger. Become who you are born to be. Take the demolved road. My name is Estelle. Who is Estelle?
0: So he steps up and acknowledges his true name, his true nature. And he accepts the idea that he is the true king. After he spent a lifetime denying his true identity and trying to push that down. So, who does Jesus say that you are this morning? Why are you here? What are you made to do? What are you doing with the time that you have? Are you being a blessing? Who are you blessing? Where are you going? Only you can acknowledge that. Our third question is what we call the Oprah question. Now you know who Oprah Winfrey is. She, pretty well-known interviewer, has a lot of asking pe- has a lot of experience asking people questions. And what has come to be associated with her is the Oprah question. And that's, what's one thing I know for sure, or what's one thing you know for sure about thus and so? And so this morning we're asking the Oprah question, and it's this. What's one thing I know for sure about Jesus? With all that large amount of information I gave you earlier, with all the things we think we know, it comes down to this. Jesus is the only answer. That's what we know. Jesus is the only answer. Many of us have gone the route of trying to get better or trying to do better. But he doesn't expect you to get better. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ doesn't expect you to get better because you can't get better on your own. The Bible teaches that. You and I, can't get better on our own in the way God has planned for us without embracing Jesus. Through the years, I've heard it said, and I've heard other people tell me they get the same, they've heard the same thing. Someone will say, when I get some things straight, I'll come to Jesus. When I'm better, then I'll come to Jesus. There's just one problem. That's completely opposite from what the Bible teaches. You can't get better without Jesus. So you're spending a lot of time, if you really are, trying to get better, never getting there. You can't get better until you know him. So this completely wrong version of life is how a lot of us go through it. I'll come back when I've got some things straight. That's not the way it's supposed to happen, everyone. So we go through life getting it completely wrong, and we don't find him. An encounter with Jesus can happen right now. It's not when you get better. It's right now. In fact, it should be right now. It should be here in this moment. If you've allowed things to separate you or keep you from finding him or keep you from connecting with him or keeping you from finding your true identity, this morning, this is the place for it to be taken care of. This is the time for it to be taken care of. It's not later. It's not when you get some things right. It's now. You see, Jesus has a name for you and for you and for you. And if you don't find that name, it's because you haven't embraced him as being his follower and then in turn tried to allow him to help grow you as being a better follower of his. What keeps you this morning from embracing your true identity and finding out today how he wants you to serve and how he wants you to be? It's an adventure, but it's not very risky. It promises the greatest and the best and a way to handle life. I think that's pretty good. And this morning, I hope you'll embrace that idea. Let's pray together. Father, we are uh, we are people that desperately need you. We are believers who sometimes grow cold and forget you. We are believers who let you be second and don't... L- don't allow you to stay first. And then some of us aren't believers this morning at all, but we keep finding reasons to stay away from you. And so it's my prayer, Father, that if we've done nothing else this morning, it's that we've re identified how we can't do this on our own, we can't do this without you, and you are truly the only answer. Who do we say you are, and who you say and who and how do we find our purpose? It's a great opportunity this morning for some of us to get the baggage out of our lives, to let go of the things that separate us from you and to come back to you. And I pray, Father, that's exactly what will happen during this time of invitation, that we'll bow a knee, bow our head, and we'll let you take over. We want to know how to be better. And only you are that answer. So thank you for reminding us this morning in this passage as we seek to serve you better in Jesus' name. Amen.